We are gonna jump into the Bible now. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke 2. You can turn it on to Luke 2. Download the app, you'll be there in no time. Luke chapter 2. The teaching series we're in is called Seeing Jesus. I don't think there's anything more important than that, by the way, Seeing Jesus. And uh, we're particularly looking through the lens of the Gospel of Luke. We're reading eyewitness accounts, people who actually lived and breathed and experienced Jesus himself. And that encounter with Jesus, what it did to them, how it changed them and transformed them, that's what we get to look at and read. And then the invitation for us is to learn from them by the work of the Holy Spirit in us, then be able to also encounter Jesus and to respond the way Jesus would like us to. Now, today we're going to look at one of the most unique human beings in all of human history, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, in the Gospels, Mary is the very first person who hears the word of the Lord, which means she is truly the very first disciple of Jesus, both mother of Jesus and first disciple of Jesus. Now, Luke introduces us to Mary early on in his Gospel account. He does so also by introducing us to some of his relatives, Zachariah and Elizabeth, which are like her aunt and uncle. Now, the contrast that Luke presents is going to be really important to understand Mary's character, her virtue, her humility, right? So uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah, they're unable to have any children, and they are well past their childbearing years. Now, Zechariah, he was a priest, part of the priestly division of Abijah. Um, he had very unique duties in the temple, which means he wasn't a slouch, right? He attended to the holiest of holies, the innermost sanctum. And it's when he's there that he receives a vision from God, that God was about to break into human history in the most unique way, but it would start with a forerunner, John, John the Baptist. He would be born miraculously from, as a child of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now remember, that's a miracle because they are well past childbearing years. Zechariah responds to the message from this angel, how can this happen? Now Zechariah should know better, he's a priest of high standing, right? He knew the scriptures. He knew Abraham and Moses and their stories. What should have been happening inside of his heart is this message from the angel should have been an indication that God is up to something. It should have been familiar. It would have reminded him of these stories that God and his deliverance is on the horizon. And then we meet Mary. Mary is also visited by an angel. She is given a unique message that she is about to be given the most unique human assignment in all of human history. God is going to arrive on the scene and he is going to enter our story as a human being. Because of his great love, he's willing to limit himself to human form to rescue us. He will be carried by and birthed by the Virgin Mary. And you're telling me, Alex, it's April, why are we looking at the Christmas story? That's what my daughter said last night. And I said, we can read the Christmas story, not at Christmas, all right? But Mary asked the same question, how can this be? See, but what's different is that God has opened wombs before. But what's about to happen to Mary is truly something that has never happened before and will never happen again. The virgin will give birth to a child and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And she hears the word of the Lord and she believes. 
And Luke records her, her response in this way. Luke 1, verse 38. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Now I want you to understand what this would cost Mary. Do you know that it is biologically impossible for a virgin to give birth? <laughs> Which would mean that no one would believe her. Her fiance Joseph didn't either. See, Joseph was betrothed to her. It's likely that he had to pay a bride price. This is culture at the time. And you didn't consummate the marriage until the wedding night at the end of a period of betrothal. So for her to be pregnant meant that almost everyone, that this was a scandal. Now, notice that you never hear of Mary's parents in the story. Their presence is completely absent. It's unlikely that they had passed away. It's much more likely that they also did not believe their daughter. Joseph had every legal right to divorce her. And in some extreme interpretations of the law, he may even have been able to have her killed for her infidelity. Yet, even then we get a glimpse into Joseph's character as well. This isn't a sermon about Joseph, but shout out to him as well. He had purpose to divorce her quietly, not make a public spectacle of her. And as he was considering this, lo and behold, an angel visited him as well, confirmed that this is truly how God was choosing to arrive into the world. And Joseph and Mary would go on with great faith and cost to steward this unique assignment from God. Together they would face ridicule for the rest of their lives. In an honor and shame-based society, Mary would be have, have seen as a woman with an illegitimate child, and Joseph would have been seen as a man who did not have the courage or honor to divorce her. As the gospel stories progress, Jesus is also, later on in his life, in his 30s, we read people slinging mud at him about him being an illegitimate child as well. There's a term for this in the first century, and it's called a mamzer. Um, the word mamzer means a person who was born of a result of a forbidden relationship or incest. According to the Talmud, which is an ancient rabbinic work, the early Jewish leaders thought Jesus was a mamzer, which means that they believed Mary was considered an adulteress and that the child was born of probably a Roman soldier, which is just another way of slinging mud at them. For these reasons and more, Mary and Joseph would have been outcasts for many. See, in my mind, they should be honored, but instead they live their days out misunderstood and maligned. And they were young. Mary probably was a teenager, which would have been very common in those days, and yet God saw the type of character in Mary that would be required for the calling on her life and again, shout out to Joseph, him too. <laughs> what kind of character are we talking about? See, Mary exemplified humility, faithfulness, goodness. God is, did you know this? God has always prioritized character over gifting, calling over competency. Gifting can always be given. Competency can always be developed. But a heart after God's own heart, that is what God is interested in. 
Remember the story, David was a teenager when he was anointed as the next king of Israel. God saw him far off in a pasture when no one else, his own father included, could even see him. God saw him, he saw his heart, and he said he will be the next king in place of Saul. 17 years go by and David then becomes king. Samuel was a child when God called him to be a prophet to all of Israel. Esther would have been a young woman when God calls her to become the queen of the conquering empire of the world. And by the way, the the disciples themselves would have all been young, late teen, early 20-somethings when they walked with Jesus. The stories go on and on, but the point remains, God does not see what human beings see, he sees into the hearts of his people. Now, Mary's age, she was young. Um, This is really important for us to understand. Uh, Humanity has not always been kind to children and to young people. Um, An older and younger generation splits and divides are normal. Right? How many memes do you see making fun of Gen Z and millennials and Gen- all of the things, right? It's almost more common to have animosity against each other than it is to see something happening where we encourage one another. Something should cause us to pause and stop and think about that. The scriptures do, and they encourage us to see our young people, our teenagers in particular, as not next, but as called now as a part of God's plan today. As those middle schoolers left the room today, you shouldn't just see them as leaving and going into another space, and when they grow up, God will have something for them. God has something for them now. We had two high school students leading us in worship this morning. God has got a call on their life, and if you are young, do not be despised or looked down upon for your age Do not think that God does not have a calling or a purpose or a plan on your life. He does. And it's not for someday far off, it's for today. But if you are of the um, more seasoned stage of life, (laughs) I want to emphasize the importance of Elizabeth's role in Mary's life. Now, Elizabeth is her aunt, and again, she's well on in years, and Mary's parents are somehow absent from this story but Elizabeth shows up in a way no one else does. Mary is young, and she isn't over her head, by the way, and no one else believes her except for her aunt, who sees her, who values her, who speaks life to her, who speaks the scriptures over her, who takes her into her home, who cares for her. See, this is a beautiful picture of the way two different generations can exist together and should. One of the reasons why we do youth ministry here is yes, because our young people matter and God has them in the game today, but also because you matter too. Your role in their life is important. I've been a pastor for almost 15 years and there's been a lot of common things I've experienced over the time, but I'll tell you one of the most common things I've heard is that young people do not think that older people care to understand them, that they don't like them or they have any interest in them. And you know what the opposite is also true, that more seasoned people in life, I would have called you older a long time ago, but I'm learning, more seasoned people in life 
think the same thing about the younger generation, that they don't like them, they're not interested in them, and they don't even care to understand them. One of my favorite lines of Jesus is this, but not so with you. But not so with you. He's constantly showing, and we'll read that later today in a different context, but Jesus is constantly looking at the way the world designs and values things, and he says, but not so with you. The kingdom of Jesus is different. The investment and the intentionality in each other's lives, young and old, is so important to the vitality of our faith, but also the witness to the world around us. Instead of complaining about the future generations or the older generations, we can model a way that builds the best on both. This is something that we see in Mary's story, and it's why we serve today. My hope is, is as you're listening to me, you also are understanding that you have an important role to play in the young people of this church's life. And if you're not in the game, rolling up your sleeves and finding a way to invest in them, well, today can be the day. Today you can start that journey. Our middle school, our high school team, info center, go stop by, sign up to serve. You don't have to teach a Bible study lesson, but I'll tell you what, show up. Because most people are not showing up in their lives. And what we see in this story of Mary and Elizabeth is that Elizabeth shows up and so does Mary. Okay, back to the story. It's almost time for Jesus to be born, but for political reasons, they are forced to travel to Bethlehem, which is the ancestral home of Joseph. No one had space for them. Now it could be because the town is overrun because of the census, but it could also be because no one wanted an illegitimate son born in their home. So Jesus is born in a stable. A feeding trough holds the king of kings, the creator of the universe, held in a lowly state, smells and sounds of animals all around, the Lord arrives in humility. Now I want you to imagine being Mary for a moment. After months and months of ridicule and pain, the moment has arrived and you are in a manger holding the savior of the world. What do you do with all of that pain? What do you do with all of the heartache? God cares for us as he did for Mary and Joseph. A host of angels arrived to some lowly shepherds proclaiming that the savior of the world has been born. He tells them to go and worship him. They arrive and it is so incredibly encouraging to Joseph and Mary. And this is all <laughs> the backdrop, by the way, 14 minutes in, to the text we're gonna look at today. How does Mary respond to all of the pain and all of the miracle in her life all at once? Luke 2, verse 19. But Mary treasured up all of these things and pondered them in her heart. Mary treasured it all up. Treasured, what does that mean? The word means kept. The angels, Zachariah and Elizabeth, her faithful and loving fiance, the chorus, an army of angels telling the shepherds to come and worship the king of kings. She treasured up all of the words of God, all of his love, his care, his presence, and she held them together. But then there was also the negative and hurtful experiences, the pain that came from faithfully following God's purpose and plan for her life. These experiences can also not be ignored. So what does she do in the tension of such miracle and ridicule? 
the text reads that she pondered them in her heart. Now, I'm gonna throw a picture up here, or actually the amazing team back there is gonna throw a picture up here. Um, Because when we think of the word pondering, we often think of this guy, the thinker statue. I first encountered the thinker statue in an aisle in Ross. You ever been to a Ross? I grew up going to Ross. Mom always took me to Ross, and my sister and my mom would go through the aisles, and this is before phones and all the things that could keep me distracted, and so I'd have to wander around the aisles of Ross, and the first, I remember the first time I saw this guy was like in a mini replica statue of this guy, and it it captured me. Also, the funny thought that this like artwork, this like 18, I think it was, when was it written? Uh, 1880. Like the guy who actually constructed this statue one day would find out that a replica, like foam statue would be in a Ross. I mean, it's like the apex of his creative genius, right? But this is often the idea we get when we think of pondering, the sort of sitting on a mountainside, reflecting upon something, mulling it over, considering all of its angles, And that's what it would mean if Aristotle had written the Gospels, but he did not. The one quality that perhaps most deeply exemplifies Mary's faith and discipleship is contained in the single phrase predicated on her, she pondered. To ponder in the Hebrew sense means to hold, to carry, and transform tension as to not give it back in like kind, knowing that we will transmit whatever energies we do not transform. In other words, you transmit what is not transformed in your life. You will give back to the world what has been given to you or what has been transformed in you. What do we mean by transformed? Well, in Romans, Paul writes that we should not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. The Greek word is metamorpho, which is where we get the English word metamorphosis from. And it refers to an inward change brought about completely apart from the power of the individual, himself or herself. There's another word for external change, but this is about change that happens in the inmost part of yourself. This is about a change that can only be done by God's work, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what happens in the text is Mary brings the good and the bad together and she holds the tension and allows the Holy Spirit to do a transforming work inside of her so that what she gives back to the world is something more powerful than what was given to her. We'll come back to Mary pondering in a moment, but Jesus teaches us how to actually do this. In the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew chapter five, Luke's gospel account has one as well, Um, But we're going to read Matthew's gospel. He teaches us how to actually do this, how to ponder, how to hold the tension, how to be transformed um, without returning the evil energy, the evil and the wickedness and the, the bitterness and anger that has come to us, but instead return it for good. He says this, Matthew 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Eye for eye and tooth for tooth, 
Let the punishment fit the crime. It was revolutionary and radical when this idea was written because we tend to escalate when we experience injustice. It's like you kick me in the shin and I will punch you in the face. I punch you in the face and you will cut off my arm, right? Like it's like we want to get revenge and it has to be worse. You hurt me, but I'm gonna hurt you five times worse. This idea of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, it, may, it forces us to let the punishment fit the crime, let the, the response of the wrongdoing fit the actual wrongdoing, and instead of escalating it. This, again, was radical when it was introduced to the ancient world. But Jesus goes beyond that teaching. Now, in my family, my kids, I have a saying with them, um, and and but my eight-year-old, like I start saying it and she finishes the sentence for me because I say it so often, but I say this to her over and over again to any of my kids. Um, we do not return evil for evil in this family. Now, evil's a broad definition, right? But the point being is that when one of my girls does something that hurts another one of my girls, we don't respond by hurting them back. That is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is what he teaches here. Now this idea comes from Paul in Romans 12. Do not be overcome by evil, but instead overcome evil with good. How do we overcome evil with good? Jesus introduces some radically different ways. Again, but I say to you, he says, turn the other cheek. That's his first way. Now, this is one of the most misunderstood uh, teachings in the New Testament. Um, the word slap, right, is um, in the Greek, it means to slap with the back of your hand. It's more of an insult and a dehumanizing act than it is an act of violence. So if you were to be slapped by the back of your hand, it was someone trying to insult you and dehumanize you. Jesus, if you're slapped with the back of your hand, whoop, sorry, Made for the effect though. If you're slapped for the back of your hand, turn the other cheek means you turn back and you face the one who is hurting you. You stare them in the face. You respond that that act of dehumanizing has no power over me. Give your coat also. You know, the law prohibited someone taking your coat as collateral overnight, and yet someone is trying to sue you in this context and take advantage of you, and Jesus responds again by saying, I have freedom that you cannot take away from me. Here's my coat also. Go the extra mile. This is another common example of the day. A Roman soldier, it doesn't matter where you are, you could be on your way to your daughter's wedding, a Roman soldier sees you and says, you need to take my stuff and carry it the opposite direction for a mile. That was Roman law. And you had no rights, you couldn't stop it, you could argue it, you could have a bad attitude about it, but you had to do it. And Jesus says, don't just go the mile, go an extra mile. Why? Because again, it's, this is an act that is intended to dehumanize someone and Jesus says, I have a freedom that you cannot take away from me. These are all examples of creative and redemptive responses to injustice. Do you remember the story of Pilate? Pilate says to Jesus, do you not know I have the power to give you life or death? And Jesus' response is what? You have no power over me except that which is given to you. 
In other words, he responds to the injustice of the crucifixion from a position of power and not weakness. He is giving over his life. It is his choice, not Pilate's power. Back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doubles down on what he means here. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word perfect literally means holy. Be other, be different as your Father in heaven is different and other and holy. How are you transformed? Well, the transforming work of the Spirit is done in love and prayer of your neighbor and especially your enemy, especially the one who stands against you. Jesus is so much more interested in saving others than he is in saving himself. And he invites us into the kind of life that emulates the sacrificial love to the world that is so often in opposition to but in desperate need of his love. And this is where we come back to Mary. At the end of Jesus' life, and this is recorded in Luke and John's gospel, but we're gonna read John's. It says this, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Mary stood at the cross. She wasn't bent over weeping. She wasn't being held up by those around her. She wasn't screaming how unfair or unjust, shaking her fist at the Romans. She stood. In the gospel, standing is a position of strength. I read one theologian this week that wrote this. In her silence and strength, it is as if she is speaking these words. Today I cannot stop the crucifixion. Nobody can. Sometimes darkness will have its hour. I cannot stop this hatred, bitterness, jealousy, and heartlessness that has caused it. But I can refuse to give it back in kind by transforming the negativity rather than transmitting it. There are times when things have gone too far that shouts and protests are no longer helpful. It seems as if darkness will have its moment and all we can do is stand under the cross and help absorb its bitterness by refusing to participate in its energy. In those situations like Mary, we have a chance to say, I cannot stop the crucifixion, but I can stop some of the hatred, the bitterness, the jealousy, the brutal heartlessness and the darkness that surrounds it. In essence, I cannot stop this, but I will not repeat it. This evil has been poured out onto me, but I will not pour this evil back into the world. And this is through Mary's lens. This is how she sees Jesus, and she takes the stand. Like Jesus, who is absorbing all of the hatred and evil and sin in the world, but on the cross, he refuses to give it back. Instead, what does he do? Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. It's not fair, but it is good to stand with our king 
and to face such evil in the world. We want to end our time today with a chance to respond the way Mary has. Have you been slandered? Have you been accused of things you know were not true? Have you experienced injustice, hurt, and pain? Is everything inside of you wanting to scream, to retaliate, to have revenge? And yet there's this part inside of you also longing to respond the way Jesus would, the way Mary modeled for us. If you're experiencing any of that, but you're desperate to not return, to transmit that hatred and evil back into the world, but instead to be transformed by it, to be changed by it, and to give back to the world the goodness of our Lord and King, I'm gonna ask you to stand with me. If that is your story, if you feel like that is what's going on in your very life right now, follow Mother Mary and stand. Stand in the face of that injustice. Ask God to do that work and I just wanna pray with you. Take courage. You don't need to be embarrassed. I promise you, if you're a human being, every one of you have experienced this very moment in your life. So you don't need to be afraid. No one's singling you out right now. If you stand, you are human, desperate to see the work of Jesus work in your life. And if that's not what you're journeying through right now, that's okay. Extend a hand, a prayer, a thought to those around you. Let me pray over you. Jesus, do what only you can do in hearts of people. The cry of our heart is that it's not fair. We're misunderstood. There's anger bitterness, rage, resentment. And yet at the same time, we sing songs like you are faithful and we know you are and you're good and we know you are and you're a loving father and we know you are, but we hold these things in tension, refusing to respond the way our flesh wants to, the way the enemy wants us to. But Jesus, in this moment, will you transform us in that tension so that what we give to the world is of you and not of us. So God, do a work inside of the hearts of everyone who is standing, of everyone who wants to stand but isn't, of everyone who feels like everything inside of them wants to scream in response to what they're experiencing, but you are calling them to stand, to be still. Jesus, do the work that only you can do in their hearts. By your Holy Spirit, come and flood this place. Heal the brokenhearted. And Jesus, now we're gonna sing. We're gonna take a moment to respond to what just happened by declaring that you are the same God that we just read about in these stories that you are in our life as well. So God, may you seal the healing work that you have begun in this very moment. We love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen, amen.